Acts chapter 20. And we are looking at verses 25 through verse 38. This is the second half of Paul's speech to the Philippian or the Ephesian elders, and so we're picking up the speech right in the middle. And so I want to ask that we stand together as I read these verses, and then we'll ask for God's help as I preach on this text. Acts chapter 20, starting with verse 25. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the gospel, the kingdom, I'm sorry, will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day and night to admonish everyone with tears. And now, I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them, with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. You may be seated. As we continue through Paul's speech to the Ephesian elders, I want to speak on this second half of this speech, and I'm going to title my sermon today, Redefining Leadership. Redefining Leadership, because I think in the world that we live in, we need to redefine the world's concept of leadership not redefine God's concept of leadership. We need to go to the Bible and understand God's definition of leadership so that we can redefine leadership for our world today. Are you with me? Redefining leadership. Let's pray and ask God for help this morning. Father, we do come before you and we say, help us as we get into your word, into this text. First of all, God, we thank you for Paul's ministry and his speech to the Ephesian elders We thank you even more that this is all your inspired word to us, inerrant, given to us for us today, as powerful, as relevant for this 21st century as it was uh, for any era uh, that we have have, uh, seen as a human race. And so, God, I just pray that you would speak to us powerfully today, speak through me. I pray that I would communicate your word, not my own. 
that you would speak to your people, give them open ears, open hearts to be receptive, to be shaped by your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A train was about to part from a large railroad station. And so the conductor began to walk through the aisles and collect tickets, punching tickets. He stopped at the first passenger and received their ticket from, him, from, from that person and took a look at it. And he looked with concern at the passenger and he says, I'm sorry, you're on the wrong train. And the passenger said, well, that can't be. The ticket agent told me to get on this train. So the conductor uh, looked at the ticket again and he said, no, you are on the wrong train. He then looked at the next passenger. He said, guys, please see your ticket. He looked at that passenger's ticket and he said, this is crazy. He said, you're on the wrong train as well. So they had this little debate and everybody started looking at their tickets and what soon became clear was that the conductor was on the wrong train. <laughs> Look, let it be known, if the leader is lost, the followers will not be on the right track. Unfortunately, today, we live in a world where leadership has become a joke, where it seems as if all of our leaders are lost. And therefore, it seems as if all of our organizations and societies and governments and people are on all kinds of crazy tracks. Nobody really knows where they're going. From scandals to cover-ups, from abuse to manipulation, from theft to greed. It seems that as we read the news and as we watch things go down, one leader after another fall to sex scandals and to financial fraud. And unfortunately, this is not just an out there problem, but it's an in here problem. Unfortunately, it seems that even within churches, we have leaders that cannot be trusted. The church is not immune to poor leadership. Just because you call yourself a church and just because that man calls himself a pastor doesn't mean that he can be trusted, and I think our world has proven that, as we've seen one pastor after another step down for abuse or adultery or power plays, manipulation. It seems as if we need to redefine leadership. The result of failed leadership leads us to a world where people are not only suspicious about leaders, but you're almost seen as immoral, questionable, if you even hold the position of any kind of leadership. More than ever, today, people are leaving organizations, leaving institutions, and trying to live a life without leadership. And then that leads us to kind of an interesting question, and that is, can we really escape leadership? There, there might not be the organizational structure, but are humans uh, deep down desiring to be led? And I would say yes. Now here's my proof. Even in this um, world where people are seeking to be independent and on their own and 
disconnected from any kind of leadership. We still have what is growing this, this, this uh, I don't know if you'd call it a role or a position, thing, entity, idea, called, wait for it, an influencer. <laughs> this is like our new leaders. These influencers, people who have somehow figured out lighting and video and, and uh, uh, pop psychology, and they can create pretty amazing videos or, or uh, 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 pictures on social media, and they become what we now call influencers. And they're much better than all of our previous leaders, aren't they? So reliable, deep. Now, I think part of the problem is we look at them and we think, man, they're, they're like all sparkle and no substance. You know, total independence, but little integrity. Not all of them. If you're an influencer, I'm not picking on you, all right? I probably follow you and benefit by uh, your, uh, you know, the, the shoestrings that you are wearing. And There's nothing wrong with it, but my point is this, is, is that even in this world that today, today that we live in, People still crave to be led. You see what I'm saying? Like, we can't escape this idea of leadership. And so, in this world, then, when leadership is, is defined as irresponsible or egotistical or shallow, we need to redefine leadership. So, we're in the book of Acts. We're just walking through Acts. We started with Acts chapter 1. Now we are on Acts chapter 20. It's this amazing book of the church being formed, the early churches being planted, and we're just tracking along and following it. We get here, we're, we're, we're watching Paul on his third missionary journey, and he has this final speech with the Ephesian elders. Within a decade, Paul is going to die. He's going to be beheaded. He's going to lose his life for the sake of the gospel, the mission that he is on. And so he gathers together these elders who he loves from the church of Ephesus on this island called Miletus, and we're peeking in on this private conversation that has become public for all of God's people to benefit from, a speech that Paul gives to these elders. And in part one, what we see is that, that, that Paul is basically saying, uh, my life is of no value in and of itself, only that I might accomplish the race that God has given me. That was part one. And then part two, Paul sort of turns to the Ephesian elders and he says, okay, now I'm passing on this kind of leadership to you. Be good leaders. That's part two. It begins, part two begins, with verse 25. He says, and, and now behold, I know that none of you, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the gospel will see my face again. So this is some sense of, uh, an eerie feeling or a prophecy somewhere in between, Paul just knows that he is not going to see these guys again. So as a result, this speech is filled with emotion. It's filled with love for each other. For each other. Skipping down to the last three verses, in verses 36 through 38, we see this love again. It says, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and 
prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the words he had spoken. Well, of course, that is the fact that he's not going to see them again and that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. You know, even there we see that Christianity is not some disembodied religious system. It's not just a number of truths that we believe and then we go about our individual lives. It's not non-relational. But on the contrary, Christianity is, is real friendships among people. It's, it's real community. You know, it's, it's brothers and sisters coming together. Um, it is real love. Not mere individualism, but communal. Not cold, but warm. And so therefore, the parting of a Christian grieves other Christians. Now, we might all say, man, I know that life is meant to be lived on this mission, and Paul, while you're leaving, while we're not going to see you again, we get it. We, we, we know that we're going to be in heaven together, and I'm so thankful that you're following God and going to fulfill this race until the end, but that doesn't mean that we're not left without grief. When somebody parts, there's a real sense of loss. Meaning we really are a family. We have real connections and, and love for each other. Verse 26, he continues, he says, Therefore, this is where he's passing the baton. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Now, it's interesting, wrapped with such love, those words almost sound cold. I love you so much, tears, weeping, and by the way, I have worked, I have labored among you, and I am innocent of your blood. Meaning, if you reject this faith after three years of me laboring to go from Genesis through the end of the Scriptures, showing how everything is fulfilled in Christ, explaining to you the new Christian ethic. And if you walk away from all of this, your blood is on your head. Paul is saying, I'm not responsible. Blood there, blood of all, is a reference to eternal judgment. It's a, re it's a reference to the fact that well, I mean, what Paul is saying is, is, is is that I'm not responsible if you end up being judged by God because I faithfully sought to give to the church what the church needed. And now what he, what he is doing is he, he's pushing these elders, these Ephesian elders, passing the baton, saying, hey, you need to do the same thing. You, you need to take this mantle and teach in such a way that you are not responsible if they enter into ju uh, God's judgment. Are you tracking with him? So in verse 28, look at verse 28. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Now let me unpack that first. We're, we, we have to recognize that there are leaders for this family. Real relationships coming together, and there, are, there, there is leadership uh, the leaders here are called elders, pastors, or bishops. Are those three different people? Nope. Three titles for the same dude. All right? Look at it in verse, I'm just going to show it to you right here. In verse 17, they're all called elders. 
The people that Paul is talking to are elders. That's always in the plural. So for that reason, churches always have more than one elder, or they should. And so in our church, we have three elders, me, uh, Roach, and, and uh, Eric Hill. Uh, flock, right there in verse 28, is the word poimeo, which is where we get the word, the, the word pastor from, or shepherd. So he's talking to the elders, and he says, pastor, the flock of God. And then in, also in verse 28, we see oversee. To oversee, that is the word episkopos, or bishop. That's where we get the word bishop from. So essentially what he's saying is, is, hey, elders, pastor the flock through bishoping them, through overseeing them. And so the, the, my simple point is this, is, is uh, that God has instituted leaders for his flock, and it's very simple. It's a plurality of pastor elder bishops that are to oversee here, in this case, the church in Ephesus. Can you call Eric Hill Bishop Hill? Yes, that's kind of exciting. Um, or Bishop Roach, I like that. Bishop. Thank you. The kingdoms of the world have leadership from Great Britain to North Korea, from the USA to Uganda, from the city council to the drug teams that run your block. The kingdoms of the world, whether big kingdoms or whether they're little kingdoms, whether they're recognized as kingdoms or whether they're recognized as merely a team. The kingdoms of the world have leadership. God's kingdom, displayed in the world, a.k.a. the local church, also has leadership. And this leadership that is to be displayed in God's kingdom is as countercultural to the world as the church is itself. And I believe that this word for us is incredibly important for us today in a world where leaders have been seen as untrustworthy, self-centered, abusive, irresponsible, egotistical. We need to redefine leadership. And what I want to present to you this morning is that we need to redefine leadership in terms of service. Now we're defining it from the Bible. We're looking at the Bible's definition, God's definition right here for what Christian leaders ought to look like. And therefore, what we're doing is we are redefining all of the stereotypes. We're redefining all of the failures of leadership in the world around us. Let me give you this morning five marks of Christian leaders. And in particular, we're talking about elder, pastor, bishops. And in general, this can be applied to any Christian leader wherever you find yourself even if you call yourself an influencer, be defined by these five principles. Number one, integrity. Integrity. We see this in verse 28. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves. He's saying, watch your motives. Watch your intentions. Watch your desires. Richard Baxter put it this way. He said, take heed unto yourselves, lest while you proclaim the necessity of the Savior to the world, your own hearts neglect Him 
and you miss out on an interest in him and his saving benefits. Take heed yourselves, lest you perish while, while you call on others to take heed of perishing, and lest you starve yourselves while you prepare their food. Church, can you imagine a chef who's preparing food for a thousand different people, and he collapses and dies of malnutrition? Can you imagine a, 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 a personal trainer who's got a hundred clients and doesn't have time to work out and is out of shape and going uh, uh, for treatment for heart disease? Can you imagine a barber with a terrible haircut? Can you imagine a uh, fashion designer who wears terrible clothing? Can you imagine a pastor? who dishes out the gospel week after week, but is not shaped by it himself. You know, unfortunately, as I gave you those first four analogies, you probably thought, I can't think of one. 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 And then I said, can you imagine a pastor? And you're like, oh, wow, that's too real. That's too real. Pastors must pay attention to themselves. They must be people of integrity. Baxter goes on with reasons as to why we need to watch ourselves. He says, take heed lest you proclaim the Savior but miss Him. Take heed lest you live in the sin you preach against. Take heed lest you become unfit to perform your duties. Take heed lest... Your, your own example contradict the doctrine that you preach. Now, uh, again, this applies directly to elders, pastor bishops, and it applies indirectly and generally to all saints. Jackie Hill Perry said that she remembers that time when a good friend of hers kind of caught her, and, and her friend said this to her. She said, if you don't get your character together... You're going to be a famous and popular hypocrite. You see, every Christian needs to take heed to their own character. And listen, every Christian with influence, you really need to watch yourselves. Because it is so easy to start thinking that you can shape and change other people, and you don't take time to allow the Word to shape and to change yourself. Are you with me? Like, I need myself to be shaped by the word ministry. Two weeks ago when, when Mike Roach preached, I, I was sitting right there, and, you know, as a pastor, I'm thinking of, like, all of the various things going on. I hear something drop in the back. I hear somebody talking in the back. I hear somebody trying to find something. And I have to discipline myself to open the word where Roach was preaching from and to follow along and to say, I need to sit under the word of God. You see, the problem with some of us in this room who are leaders, elders, deacons, ushers, uh, helpers, you know, you, you think like a leader. You, you, you just naturally are a leader. The problem is this, is that sometimes you think you are too special and don't need the ordinary means of grace that every other Christian needs. And this is why you're walking out with somebody to do one-on-one -on -one counseling instead of being in the room 
under the Word. You see, you, are you with me? This is why when the, when the preaching starts, sometimes we pull out our phones and start scanning through Instagram because, shoot, I've been, I've been teaching people all week long. I do not need to sit under the Word that everybody else needs. Friends, that is the root of pride. And this is why, first of all, I, I love the fact that our leaders in this church are not what I just described. But it's partly because I'm always telling them, hey, sit down during Bible study. You don't need to keep getting up and doing things. Just be present. Be under the Word. Be shaped by the Word. We have to, leaders, pay attention to ourselves and not think that we don't need what every other Christian needs. Are you with me? So I ought to be very concerned in my own life when I start missing my accountability meetings, thinking that I don't need accountability. I should be very concerned in my life when, when my devotions in the morning start to look more like sermon prep as opposed to being shaped myself by the Word of God. We have to, first and foremost, leaders, be shaped by God's Word. We have to focus on our integrity or you will be an influencing hypocrite. Pay attention to yourselves. This is, look, every Christian must. Influencers really need to pay attention to themselves. Elders, it is essential. We have to pay careful attention to ourselves. Secondly, in verse 28, we see responsibility. So not only in verse 28 are they to watch over their own lives, but these Christian leaders are also to watch over the lives of the church. They're to know the flock, they're to pay attention to the flock, and to watch over the flock of God. Good shepherds are to ensure that grass is eaten by the sheep, the right grass, that they're in the right fields, and that there is proper uh, gates around those fields. In verse 28, he goes on, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. He, in that same verse, restates it, and he says, care for the church of God. What does this look like? Well, 2 Timothy 4.4, Paul explains it to an Ephesian pastor, and he says it looks like teaching, admonishing, correcting, rebuking, encouraging the flock. As I told you a few weeks ago, sometimes we mistake butchers for shepherds. Sometimes butchers look a lot like shepherds. Remember the story I told you of a guy who was, saw, saw this flock of sheep, and he saw a man walking with the flock, and he's like, oh, what a, be, what, a, what a wonderful little shepherd that is. And his tour guide said, no, that's, that's not a shepherd, that's a butcher. They're walking to die. Sometimes butchers are mistaken to be shepherds. Listen, God has never told pastors to butcher the sheep. And sometimes, look, when I was a young preacher, when we first were starting things here, I had somebody tell me after one of my sermons, this is 10 years ago, he said, he said man, he said, you, you cut us up today, but you left us bleeding. Mmm. We're not called to butcher. We're not called to go for the jugular and then let somebody bleed out on the floor. We're not called to lead our churches as organizations for our benefit and then butcher the sheep that don't get on board. 
You see, in the world, the phrase get on the bus or get run over is common and a popular ideology, and we got to redefine that as Christian leaders. God's shepherd should never say, hey, get on my bus or you get run over by my bus. But rather, God's leaders care for all of the flock. Listen, check this out. Even the ones who don't like him. You you see how hard this is to preach this text this morning? I told the elders, I was like, this is a tough one. Because I'm preaching about good eldering. And that means i got to live up to this. Elders got to care for even the sheep that don't like him. Even the sheep that don't get on board with his vision for the church. Tim Carey and I are reading this book on character by Aaron Medikoff. And in chapter 1, the author says that, uh, uh, that there's this common phrase that people use in ministry which, which goes, uh, man, ministry would be easy if it wasn't for people. You may have heard that before. You know, like, man, we could really, like, we could really be reaching this neighborhood if it wasn't for people. If it wasn't for the people, these programs would be killing, killing it. If it wasn't for people, we could really do some good evangelism. If it wasn't for these people. And he says the problem with that phrase is that we forget that the people are the mission. The people are the mission. And so you can have a, you know, a type A personality guy with a big vision, and he's like, hey, we're going to take this church, and we're going to go about things the way I want to go about it, and we're going to accomplish this vision. And if you don't get on board with me, then just get out the way. What he's forgetting, what he's not realizing, is that the people are the mission. Sure, try to win them over to your vision. Try to compel them, but they are your mission. The vision is for that family to grow into a beautiful garden. There you go. Good name for a church. It's to grow into this beautiful tree. That is the vision. That is the mission. And so so as we see this Christian leadership kind of coming together here, we see that they are to be responsible not just for themselves, but also for the people that God has entrusted to them. That they are to shepherd that people. And care for them. Now, why is it? He goes on in the same verse. He tells us the, uh, the foundation for all of this. Why this matters. And, uh, and this becomes my third mark, and that is stewardship. Stewardship. So integrity, responsibility, and stewardship. We also see this in verse 28. A, a man named Reggie was given a car uh, by his father when he was uh, in, uh, uh, a senior in high school. And he tells this story about how this car was this candy apple red and, and uh, it was a Mustang. He got a license plate that said Reg Jr. on it, custom plates. And so Reggie was sort of the big man on campus as he would drive this this red Mustang to school every day. Everybody knew that he was the big man uh, because he had the wheels, he had the car. Well, one day, there was an event happening at the school that Reggie wanted to go to, and for whatever reason, his father told him, no, you can't go to this event. 
Well, that night, Reggie took his keys, snuck out the house without his father knowing, and drove his Mustang to the event because he just had to be there. Because he's got the Mustang, and he's got to show it off. He's got to show up at the event. By the time he got home, as he pulls up in the driveway, as you can imagine, his father is standing there waiting for him. Reggie gets out the car, and his father says, give me the keys. Reggie says, uh, this is my car. My, my name is on, on the tags. You gave this car to me. And his father said, give me the keys. Your name might be on the tag, but my name is on the title. I own the car, not you. God is saying, I own it, not you. Look, whatever God has given you to have influence over, whatever kind of organization, whatever kind of friendship, whatever kind of group that you have opportunity to have influence over, God is saying to you, I own it, not you. And so really all of leadership is a matter of what we call stewardship, which is the idea of taking care of something that somebody else owns and then using that something in a way that the owner wants it to be used. That is stewardship. Now look at, look at verse 28 again. Uh, as God is saying, I own it, not you. In verse 28, we see the fact that God owns the church. So there are these imperatives. The imperatives are watch, all right, care for the, flo- for the flock in verse 28. But these imperatives are framed by what you might call passive verbs, if you remember fourth grade. Passive verbs uh, would, would say that God has taken something upon himself for your benefit or for the benefit of the church. And so what it says here is is that God, here's the passive verb, verb, has made you overseers. Like God has done something that you have been a recipient of. Meaning, the fact that you are an elder, pastor, bishop is not something that you've done for yourself. Pastors don't make themselves. Pastors don't license themselves. Elders don't turn themselves into elders. And even as a church, we don't make elders. Only God does. And so anytime a church appoints an elder, that is simply a recognition that God has made this person an overseer of the flock. And so God is saying, look, you don't even own your position." You don't even, whatever you call yourself, that title, you don't even own that. Even that is something I've just given to you. And oh, by the way, this organization that you are called to lead is mine as well. It says here that God obtained the church with his own blood. The church has been bought with the blood of of Jesus Christ. That means the pastor doesn't own the church. You know, I've actually had to correct folks sometimes when they say, I go to Joel's church. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That ain't my church. Don't ever call this Joel's church. 
You could say you go to God's church, and Joel has been given the opportunity to steward a position in that church. That would be more accurate. But the man doesn't own the church. That is not Pastor so-and-so's church over there and Pastor so-and-so's church over there, and this is not Joel's church. This is not Mike's church or Eric's church. This is God's church. Why? It's because I, I don't have the ability to die for your sins. All right? God obtained the church with his own blood, and that is a price that I cannot pay. You, you see what I'm saying? Like, God owns this church. And I am just merely a steward of what is His as a leader. And so we are talking about stewardship, and that is our incentive to care for the church of God. Pastors who use then the church for self-glorifying or self-promoting purposes are pimps, not pastors. They're using something that is owned by someone else for their benefit. May our church never be led by a man who would seek to use this, this body for his purposes. Why? Well, let's go on to the fourth. This is, they're just kind of building on each other here. The fourth mark here is vigilance. Vigilance. To be vigil is to just is, is is like waiting for a potential attack and watching for that so that you can defend the vulnerable. Christian leaders are to be vigilant. Why? Because there are wolves on the prowl. Look at verse 29. He says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from, look at this, from among your own selves, from among your own selves, will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. From within, there are wolves that are going to come. Now these wolves What do they do? How, how, How are they wolves? It says they speak twisted things. Here's the danger of false teaching, church. It's because a false teacher doesn't come with a new message. But rather, a false teacher comes with the old, old story, and he adds his own spice. He adds his own slant in a, in such a way that he actually twists the message of God to the point where it's no longer the message of God. God says, I don't recognize that message, I don't recognize that teaching, and I don't recognize that man. It, he twists things. And so these elders are called to be vigilant, to watch for those coming from within who are going to take God's Word and twist it just ever so much and then lead people away from God as a result. You know, so often we think of our greatest threat as outside of the church. If you were to ask Christians today, what is the greatest threat the church faces? They might say public school systems, politics. Others might say gentrification. 
Others might say radical and crazy ideology. Look, Paul, the apostle, lived in a time where the outside world was extremely hostile to to Christianity. But as Paul is warning the Ephesian elders about the potential attack, the potential threat that, that the church faces, he doesn't say it's coming from the outside, but it's coming from within. Meaning our greatest threat is not just what's going on in culture. Our greatest threat are those who call themselves Christians who take God's Word and twist it. And yeah, sometimes they twist it to make it fit with culture, to make it look with culture. But we need to be vigilant, not from the attack on the outside. You see what I'm saying? We need to be, a vi- be uh, vigilant because of the potential threat that's coming from, uh, from, from inside. Now, this is not a witch hunt, but good shepherds simply watch for threats coming from all sides. And so in verse 31, he continues and he says, Therefore, be alert, meaning stay awake, remembering that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. And that's how, this is how you stay alert. It's through admonishing people. This is, this is how Paul did it. This is how he stayed awake watching for the wolves, through admonishing day and night through tears. So therefore, be alert. Stay awake. Somebody once said, the lion and the calf may surely lie down together, but the calf is going to stay awake all night. You know, you can only imagine that lion laying there, laid out on his back, snoring. The snore of deep slumber. And that calf is, is sitting there with his eyes wide open, just staring at that lion, watching for him to move. Afraid that if he falls asleep, the lion might take the opportunity. This is what they say, sleeping with one eye open. That's the image that Paul brings up here. He says, stay awake, stay on the alert, don't slumber. So therefore, Christian leaders are always watching things and they're hearing things differently. They're they're asking different questions. They're, They're aware of what people are listening to and reading because they just want to stay alert and stay awake to guard and to protect God's flock as good stewards of the body. The power in verse 32 now will be the grace of God. In verse 32, Paul says, Now I commend you to God and to the word of His grace which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all who are satisfied. That word commend right there is this idea of setting food before someone who's about to eat. Setting out food on the table. Paul is saying, I now am giving you, the elders of the Ephesian church, over to God. I'm I'm setting you before God. Paul is saying, you don't need me anymore. Paul's leaving. He's going on. They're never going to see him again. Oh, how are we going to survive without the apostle Paul? He says, oh, I'll, tell, I'll tell you how you're going to survive. I'm, I'm giving you to God. You've got the word of God's grace. You've got the power of the Holy Spirit. Meaning, this right here, the, the Bible, the word of His grace, and how God can use this in continuing to shape and form the Ephesian church or the Garden church, this is our power. This is where it's at. How do we, 
How do we keep the wolves out? How do we watch over each other? How do we care for each other? It's through the word of His grace. It's through the power of the Holy Spirit, alive and active in our midst. God's leaders are always dependent on His word. Now, fifth and final mark, and I'm done. Fifth and final mark is sacrifice. Sacrifice. We've got integrity, responsibility, stewardship, vigilance, and sacrifice. Somebody once said effective leadership is the willingness to sacrifice for the sake of a predetermined objective. Well, there is a predetermined objective in Christian leadership, and Christian leadership is the willingness to sacrifice for that objective to shape and fashion the church of God. Paul, using himself, one last time as an example in verse 35, he says, look at it, he says, in all these things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Here Paul is basically saying, look, when I was with you, I sacrificed. I didn't go after your gold and your silver. I wasn't trying to rummage through your clothing closet and, and provide for myself. But rather, I worked by my own hands. I provided not only for myself, but my whole missionary squad. And I was able to, uh, to, to serve in such a way for what purpose? Well, it's to show you. He did all of that for three years as a lesson to the Ephesian elders. Now, it's interesting. Paul later in 1 Timothy uh, tells the Ephesian elders that, that elders are uh, worth being supported, meaning it's not a sin if Paul were to take support from the church. But he also says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that elders must not be lovers of money. And so Paul was working and living in such a way that he might put his own life on display and say, don't do this for the cash. Don't Take advantage of the sheep. Instead, watch out for the weak. What, do whatever you can to care for the weak. Now, how did, how did, he, how did he do this? How did he show, show this? It was simply through following Jesus. It was through following Jesus. He says, he quotes Jesus. He says, as Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When, when leadership has been defined by the world as irresponsible and egotistical, check this out, Jesus redefined leadership as what? As service. Jesus redefined leadership by himself saying, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And if anybody knew what it was like to give, it was Jesus Christ himself. So take that lesson from Jesus. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Imagine you borrowed money for a car. Now, I'm sure none of you have done that. And you, you, you're unable to pay back your creditor. The, the debt is just astronomical. And, and out of the blue, you're, you're sitting there on, uh, parked on right, right out here on on uh, uh, Madison Avenue, and you see, coming around your corner, you see your creditor walking toward you. 
and you think, oh, here we go. He's come to take everything I got. And your creditor walks towards you, and instead of taking your car, he hands you a bag of cash, and he walks away. And you look at the cash, and you realize this is not only enough for me to get caught up with my car payments, but he has given me the entire amount of money that I need for my car. You know, sometimes you just have to make illustrations up because they will never happen in real life. But how much better? <laughs> Come on. Look, don't you understand that you owed to God more than you could ever give? You owed God because you are a sinner, a rebel against Him. You owed Him your entire life. And not just this life, but all of eternity under the judgment of God is what we owed God. But all through the Bible, we see as God reveals his character to us, we see this, this phrase as sort of a theme of God's work, and that is this, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I could take you all the way back to Hosea, who, who becomes sort of a picture of Christ for us. Where Hosea, if you know the story, sees his wife who sold herself into prostitution, She's being auctioned off on the, on, on the auction block, and Hosea goes, and he gathers what a typical prostitute would have costed in that day, plus a whole bunch more. And he takes all of this cash, and he walks over to the auction, and he pays more for his wife than she's even worth according to their own market value, buying her out of prostitution, because it is more blessed to give than to receive. Oh, or I could go back to Joseph. I love the story of Joseph, where Joseph has been wronged by his brothers. These murderers threw him in a pit and then ended up selling him into slavery, and he ends up in, in Egypt, and he ends up living a, a, a horrible life, locked up in prison, uh, shamed and, and, and taken advantage of and lied on over and over and over. And then by God's sovereign mercy in Joseph's life. He's brought out of jail and he's brought up into a position of leadership in the kingdom. And you know the story where his brothers show up in Egypt looking for food. Joseph, man, I, I think we all love this story because we always think like, if I was Joseph, this is how I would respond to my brothers right now. Instead, Joseph, go, he turns his face from his brothers and he weeps out of love and brokenness for them. He hides his face. And then ultimately he, he gives everything that he can possibly give from the kingdom of Egypt for these brothers and brings his entire family to live with him. Complete restoration. Why? Because it is more blessed to give than to receive. We could go all the way back to Father Abraham who walked his son up the side of a hill to, to perform a sacrifice for God. And as they're walking up the hill, his, his son Isaac asks, Father, I, I see the fire, but where is, where is the sacrifice? And Abraham responds, he says, the Lord will provide. They get to the top of the hill, and you probably know the story where uh, Abraham takes Isaac and he puts him, Isaac, his, his son, on the altar. 
and is about to sacrifice his son to God, in that moment an angel grabs Abraham's hand and points his direction to the thicket, and there is a ram caught in the thicket, a substitute for his son. God provided. God provided. God gave to Abraham. So Abraham did not have to give his only son because it is more blessed to give than to receive. And do you understand, church, that when God sent his son into the world to be the substitute for your sin, he did not spare his son. But rather, it says of Jesus, for even the Son of Man did not come to serve or to be served, but rather to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Because it is better to give than to receive. Look, when Jesus came to this, to this earth, he could have come to take from us. He could have come how the creditor would typically come in this world. And that is to take back what he deserves. To take back his honor, to take back his glory. And to throw all of us into condemnation and judgment for all of eternity. When he came, he could have taken your son. But instead, God gave you his son. When he came, he could have taken your comforts. But instead, Christ gave you his comforts. When he came, he could have taken your provisions. But instead, God gave you his provisions. When Jesus came, he could have taken your life. But instead, Jesus gave you his life. Church, it is more blessed to give than to receive. I wonder if that makes anybody happy in this room, that Jesus gave it all so that we might then stand before God and be accepted by God. So what is our response? Our gospel response is to receive it and then to give. And what do we give God? We give him all the glory and all the honor and all the power. It all belongs to him. The God who sent his son to die for us, who then became our model of Christian leadership in the world, which says, here's how we define Christian leadership, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the, not just the model of Christ, but we thank you for the gift of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ for us on our behalf so that we might be forgiven of our sins, cleansed from all unrighteousness, and brought into your kingdom. God, as citizens of your kingdoms, as elders or pastors, as Christian leaders, as influencers, as people who can influence another individual, I pray, God, that we would see all of this as a matter of integrity, responsibility, stewardship, sacrifice, that we would live all of our lives for the glory of Christ, the one who saved us, and that we would do all things for his glory, for his honor, to point lost men and women to Christ and to help shape your church as the body of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.